So open your Bible to Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And in Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus begins what is called the Mount of Olives Discourse, where he begins to discuss end-time events. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came for to show him the buildings of the temple. Verse 2. And Jesus said unto them, Say ye not all these things, verily I say unto you, See ye not all these things, I say unto you, There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. When Jesus made that statement, there was nothing that seemed more impossible to take place because the stones of the temple were so massive. One stone alone weighed more than 500 tons. To this day, they do not know how they put those stones in place. And the very thought that all of these stones would be thrown down seemed preposterous, but it happened in the year 70 AD. And today when you go to the city of Jerusalem, if any of you have ever been to the city of Jerusalem, most people go straight to the Wailing Wall and they miss going right to Robinson's Arch, which is where there was once a great arch. And when you go to Robinson's Arch, there is an ancient road, the very road that Jesus walked upon. And that road today is completely crushed because of the massive, massive stones of the temple that fell, just like Jesus prophesied. And every time people see those stones, they don't realize it, but those stones are crying out as living witnesses that if this could happen, as according to Jesus' words in verse 2, then it is the guarantee that everything else Jesus said in this chapter is also going to come to pass. Then when you come to verse 3, the Bible says, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, which was just across the valley from the Temple Mount, a panoramic view, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And tonight, if you have an ink pen or a pencil, I want you to underline or circle several things in verse three. First of all, they said, tell us when, either underline or circle this word when. The word when is the Greek word pote. It's very, very specific. When they were private with the Lord, they said, tell us exactly when are these things going to take place. Don't waste any words. Tell us exactly and what shall be the sign of thy coming. The word what is the little Greek word T, which describes the most minute, minuscule detail. Or they were saying, Lord, tell us exactly down to the smallest detail. We want to understand, first of all, when, exactly when are these things going to happen? And T, what, exactly down to the most precise details, what shall be the sign of thy coming? And the word sign is the Greek word simeon. And the Greek word simeon was the Greek word used to describe signs along the road to alert you where you are as you're on a journey. For example, Denise and I live outside the city of Moscow. If there were no signs on the road, we would not know where we were in our journey as we travel into the city. But because there are road signs, that's this word Simeon, by looking at the signs, we can see where we are on the road, the next sign will tell us how far we've journeyed, how much further we have to go. And finally, we come to a big sign which says Moscow. And when we see the sign Moscow, we know we're no longer journeying toward Moscow, but now we've actually entered into the territory of Moscow. And that is the word that is used here. And when they said, what exactly precisely shall be the sign 
of thy coming. It literally meant, Lord, what will be the signs we'll see along the prophetic road to tell us where we are in time and how much further we have to go before the end of the world. The word end is the Greek word suntileas. It doesn't describe finality as most people would think of, but rather the wrap-up of a particular age, and that leads us to the word world. The word world is not the Greek word geis, which would describe the physical earth. It's not the word cosmos, which would describe the universe, but rather this is the Greek word ionos. It describes an age, an age. So a little translation is, Lord, tell us exactly when shall these things be precisely down to the finest point, what will be the sign we see along the prophetic road to let us know we've come to the wrap-up of this current age? And then Jesus begins to enumerate signs that we'll see as we come closer to the end of the age. And he begins in verse 4 with the first sign and the most important sign. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Well, most people just jump right down to verse 6, where Jesus said, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Verse 7, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be pestilence and famines and earthquakes and divers places, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. Most people skip right to verse 6 and verse 7 and don't understand the importance of verse 4. But in verse 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed. It's the Greek word blepete. It's a form of the word blepo, which means look, listen. He was trying to jar them with his words to get them to really throw their shoulders back and hear what he was about to say. And the first sign Jesus said that we'll see indicating we're coming to the end of the age is worldwide deception. Take heed that no man deceive you. And the word that is deceived, used to, as deceive in this verse, is the Greek word planeo, a word that is very well known. This word deceive, the Greek word planeo, was used primarily to describe a moral wandering, a moral wandering. And in fact, it was also used in an agricultural sense to describe animals that had so lost their way and had gotten so far off track that they were unable to find their way back home. And the rabbis between the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament used this very word and prophesied that at the very end of the age, we will know it is the end of the age. And the rabbis said, because spirits of delusion will be released in society and people will begin to believe that which is contrary to science and society as a whole will begin to veer from the solid path that was well-worn, that they have walked upon for ages and ages, and will elect to take another route. This is the Greek word planeo, which means to lead off track. And in this verse, Jesus prophesies, you'll know it is the end of the age, because at the very, very end of the age, people will begin to believe delusional things. That is literally what it means. But wait, what else can we determine? Go, if you would, to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul also talks about the end of the age. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he writes, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly 
that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. But notice that the first of the verses says now. The Greek is very emphatic. It's almost like the Holy Spirit is reaching through the pages of the Bible to grab us by our shirts and to shake us up. Now listen, hear this. Now the Spirit speaks expressly. Speaketh expressly is the form of the Greek word retus. A better translation would be the Spirit speaks emphatically. The Spirit speaks categorically. The Spirit speaks unquestionably, unmistakably. And now the Holy Spirit points his finger 2,000 years into the future. And speaking through Paul begins to prophesy what's going to happen in the end of the age. And it's very interesting that when you study the writings of Jesus, the writings of Paul, the, reading, the writings of Peter, and the writings of Jude, every single time the coming of the Lord is discussed, it is discussed also in the context of worldwide deception, which means deception and delusional times are going to precede the coming of the Lord. And now in chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit speaks expressly, categorically, emphatically, unmistakably, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that in the latter times, the word latter is the Greek word husteros. The word husteros describes the very, very end of a thing when there's not much left. When you've come to the end of the age, the last time there's not another age to follow, some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. But notice it says some shall depart. The word depart, the Greek word ephistomy, from the word apo, which means away from, and it carries the idea of distance, and the word histomy, which means to stand. But when you compound the two words together, it describes people who once believed one thing, but now they're beginning to change their position. They're beginning to change their stand and oppo. They're distancing themselves from what they once believed, what they once embraced, and they're gradually, very slowly, methodically moving away from, they are in transition. This verse calls it a departure. Notice it does not say they will reject the faith. This is not an outright rejection. This is a modification of society. When very slowly, little by little, methodically, society and even the church we're going to find is going to begin to release its position, release its stance, because it is no longer coinciding with the new spirit of the age. The thinking is changing, and therefore people are going to begin to modify what they believe and what they assert, and they will begin to step away from what they once believed, oppo, even putting distance between themselves and it. And step by step, very slowly, very methodically, they will begin to change their position and begin to depart from the Bible says, the faith. Now, notice it does not say that they're going to depart from faith. It says they will depart from the faith. And in Greek, it has a definite article. If it simply said depart from faith, it would mean that they were going to depart from a general belief in God. But because it has a definite article, it means emphatically they will begin to step away from and position themselves away from the faith, the clear teaching of scripture no longer holding on to scripture as they once did but now departing from it why giving heed to seducing spirits 
and doctrines of devils. The word giving heed, the Greek word pros echo, the word pros means toward. The word echo means to embrace. It describes people who once embraced one thing, but now they're beginning to release it little by little. Their grip on it is loosening as they turn pros echo to embrace something else. They've turned in a different direction. And what is luring them to turn? He says, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. The word seducing, again, the Greek word planeo, spirits which cause people to veer morally. Spirits which seduce people away from the path that they once walked upon. And in fact, this word planeo was also used to describe people who were walking right on the edge of a treacherously dangerous cliff. There's not a more dangerous place than they could walk. And here it's called seducing spirits, spirits that lure people morally onto the most treacherous path that they can walk upon. And he says, doctrines of devils. The word doctrines, the Greek word didaskalia, from the Greek word didasko, which means I teach. The word kalos means that which is excellent. You compound the two words together, the word teaching here, or doctrines, describes teaching that is very well packaged, information that is highly packaged. And now the Holy Spirit in the first century is pointing all the way to the very last century, to the end of the church age, and is prophesying at the end of the age, demon spirits are no longer going to dress with horns on their head and pitchforks in their hands, but they will present themselves with new information, possibly even backed up by so-called science or new thinking of the day, well-packaged new information, which is going to be promulgated to society. And Paul says, make no mistake, behind it is the activity of devils. And the word devils that is used here explains why lunacy is in society. The word devils, the Greek word daimonion, it describes spirits that cause insanity, spirits of insanity or spirits of delusion. And when these spirits are released into society, people will become delusional in their beliefs. So now Jesus uses the word planel and says, look, 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 listen, listen, listen. You'll know when you've come to the end of the age because delusional thinking will be released in society at large. Now through the apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit says, when you come to the very end of the age and not much time is left, people will begin to rethink what they believe. They'll begin to put distance between themselves and what they once believed, change their position, not understanding. It is the activity of demon spirits luring them away from the truth, providing them with well-packaged information. But behind that information is the activity of demons whose intention is to create lunacy and insanity. Now turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Denise can tell you, I've never put all these verses together before, but this is what's on my heart tonight. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And when you come to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of the chapter, it is one of the most brilliant texts in the entire New Testament. As the Apostle Paul begins to give the history of the world and describes how society will end at the conclusion of the age. In verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God 
is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That word hold is the Greek word kadeko. It doesn't just mean to hold. It really means to suppress. The idea is they know the truth. They don't like the truth anymore, and therefore they're trying to suppress the truth so the truth will not get out where it can positively affect society. So they're trying to put a lid on the truth. They're trying to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Verse 21, because that when they knew God. This word knew does not mean to know him as one that is born again, but it is a general knowledge of God, a respect for God. And now Paul says a time will come when people who once had a general reverence for God, they had a general knowledge of God, will cease to glorify him as God, and neither will they be thankful and this word thankful, the Greek word akeristos, really describes a generation that feels they are entitled to everything and they are thankful for nothing. They just believe they deserve everything whether they've worked for it or not. And he says they became vain. The word vain, the Greek word metaios, means utterly wasted in their imaginations. The word imaginations is the Greek word logismos. It's where we get logical thinking. They became wasted in their minds and their foolish heart was darkened. According to this verse, their heart is going to be filled with foolishness and their heart was darkened. Well, let me ask you, what does the heart do? The heart as an organ does what? It pumps. And what does it pump? It pumps blood. The heart is so effective at pumping that every single part of your body is filled with blood because the heart is pumping and pumping and pumping and pumping and pumping that blood. But now Paul says at the end of the age, the heart of society will become so foolish that rather than the heart of society pumping blood, the heart of society like an organ will begin to pump darkness and darkness and darkness and darkness until darkness begins to pervade every part of society. And this agrees with Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 where Isaiah prophesied at the end of the age people will not know the difference between darkness and light they'll call darkness light they'll call light darkness they'll call good bad bad they will call good and now Paul affirms this by saying the heart of society at the end will begin to pump and pump and pump and pump darkness and in verse 22 he says professing themselves to be wise. The word wise is a form of the Greek word sophos. <laughs> the word sophos describes those who deem themselves as being a cut above the rest of society. These are the progressive thinkers, those who claim professing themselves to be wise. It doesn't say they are wise. It says they're professing themselves to be wise. We're going to lead the way into a new age, into a new day. We're leaving the past behind. But Paul says, make no mistake professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 
The word fools is the Greek word moreno. And yes, it is where we get the word for a moron. He says, while they're professing themselves beyond the cutting edge to be the leaders of a progressive society, in reality, they became morons. Verse 23. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. What in the world is this verse about? And I'm telling you, this verse is simply brilliant. In this verse, Paul gives the history of idolatry. In the earliest times of idolatry, what did they worship? They worshiped creeping things. If you look at the idolatry that has survived and the relics of ancient Egypt, they worshiped bugs, they worshiped snakes, they worshiped creeping things. But as time went by, the thinking of man began to ascend a little higher and they began to worship cows, they began to worship beasts, four-footed beasts. Then, by the time you get to the Roman Empire, they begin to worship birds. This is why the eagle was part of the insignia of the Roman Empire. Their thoughts were ascending. They began with creeping things. Then they begin to worship four-footed beasts. Then their minds went higher. They begin to worship birds. And finally, at the very end of the age, Paul says, man will no longer worship creeping things or four-footed beasts or birds and things that fly, but man will begin to worship man himself. He will become the center of his worship the center of his fixation. They will change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. Verse 24, wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Well, some people read this and they say, this is so unfair, God just gave up on them. Well, that's what the King James Version says. But the Greek word is paradidomi. A better translation would be, wherefore God released them. He released them. One thing we need to understand about God is God will not make you worship him. If you want to worship something else, God will let you do it. And now we find at the end of society when man has turned from God and man is fixating on man, it is the equivalent of God saying, is that what you want? Go get it. I won't hold you back. God released them to uncleanness. This particular word for uncleanness is always associated with sexual uncleanness. Through the lusts of their own hearts to do what? To dishonor their own bodies between themselves. The word dishonor is a Greek word which would be better translated to displace their own bodies between themselves. Not only are they going to disfigure and dishonor their bodies, but they're going to put bodies in positions that they don't naturally belong in. This is a misfitting of bodies. This is a dishonoring of bodies. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up. A better translation, God released them unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned. In their lust, one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet 
Verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It wasn't that they were ignorant of God. They came to a fork in the road when they said, we're not going to retain God in our knowledge anymore. It's like Paul prophesied in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, they're going to distance themselves from what they once believed and methodically, slowly, slowly, they will be mentally modified until they come to a place where they will say, we don't believe what we used to believe. They will not retain God in their knowledge. So God will give them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient or not natural. What does the word reprobate mean? We always used that word when I was a kid to describe people we didn't like. Ah, he's just a reprobate. How many of you have heard it used like that? We didn't even know what that word meant. Do you know what the word reprobate means? It's the Greek word adokimos. The word dokimos in this particular sense, describes a mind that is brilliantly made as God intended it. Thinks well, can see well, can rationalize well, but when you put an A on the front, adikimos, it reverses the condition. Now it is a mind that has been subjected to wrong information so many times that it has begun the modification of a person's mind so they don't really believe what they once believed. They don't see what they once saw because they've been through a process of mental modification. And Paul says at the end of the age, we will enter the age of reprobate. Now, friends, that is remarkable if you consider the age that we're living in today. When you think about children, they're attending elementary school. And I just read an article this week that has been recommended by one of the Ivy League schools to begin telling children by the age of three that they should question their gender. A child doesn't even know who they are at the age of three. Question science, question what they've been told. Your anatomy is not important. And they're hitting the children and hitting the children and hitting the children and hitting the children. This is called mental modification. It leads to a reprobate condition. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. It just means their mind has been modified. That's really what it means. I was recently listening to a member of Congress, which I don't do very often because I live in Russia. But as I was listening to this person speak absolute ludicrous things, I said to Denise, this person really believes what they're saying. They're not just trying to sell ridiculous information, crazy science. This is a person that has subjected their mind to wrong information again and again and again and again and again until finally the mind has begun to be warped. It's begun to be changed. They don't think the way they used to think. Now they call good evil. They call bad good. Their mind has been modified. People made in the image of God, given a mind fashioned by God that should think brilliantly, but because of the inundation of wrong information, their mind has become modified. It's become ill-affected. That would be a very good translation of the word reprobate, or their mind has been modified to depart from that which is right and to embrace something that is simply ludicrous. And now the Apostle Paul also prophesies this will be a sign that you've come to the end of the age. 
Now turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, the Apostle Paul again begins to speak about the end of the age. He says, this know also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. How I wish I had a whiteboard, I would just take this apart for you in Greek, because every word in this verse is so important. For example, the word this, the Greek word tauto, it's very emphatic. It's like he's pointing his finger saying, this, this, please hear me emphatically understand what I'm about to tell you. I'm going to talk about this. Then he uses the word no, the Greek word genoskete, a form of the Greek word genosko, which means know this categorically, know this emphatically, don't make a mistake. You've got to get a grip on this and understand, know this also, that, the word that in Greek is the word hoti, it's a pointer word, he's pointing to something very specific. Now the Holy Spirit's telling us what we categorically must know, what we emphatically must understand, that... In the last days, perilous times shall come. The word last is different from the word last, which we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. That's the word husteros. It describes the end of a thing or not much left over, but this is the word eschatos, and it's where we get eschatology, which is the study of end-time things. But guess what? This word eschatos was a specific word only used in one way, and therefore, there are not multiple interpretations. It describes that which is last, that which is final. For example, you would use this word last, the Greek word eschatos, to describe the last day of the week or the last day of the month or the last month of the year. It is the very, very last. This word eschatos describes the ultimate, ultimate end of a thing, and it was used by Greek writers to describe the very, very end of the earth, and most importantly, it was a navigational term used to describe the last port for a ship, which means eschatos, if you've come to this port, there's not another port after this. You have come to the end of the trip. There's no more time left for the journey. Eschatos, this is the last port. That's the word that is used here. So when you come to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, the Holy Spirit is not just talking about the period of the last days. The last days have been going on for 2,000 years. It began on the day of Pentecost. That triggered the last days, which is synonymous with the church age. The church age in the last days, that's the same deal. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, Peter prophesied and said, Thus saith God that in the last days I will pour out my spirit. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, that triggered the last days. And we've been living in that period for 2,000 years. But in this verse, the Holy Spirit's pointing to the very, 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 very ultimate end. When you come to this place, you've sailed to the last port. You cannot go any further. You've come to the very end. And he says, perilous times shall come. Huh. The word perilous is the Greek word kalopos. The word kalopos is only used two times in the New Testament. So to understand what the word perilous, the Greek word kalopos means, you have to go back to the other place where it's used. So hold your finger here 
and turn to Matthew chapter 8, where you're going to find the same word perilous, the Greek word kalopos. And Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. The Bible's talking about Jesus coming to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. And it was coming to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. There met him two possessed with devils. Coming out of the tombs, what's those next two words in the King James Version? Exceeding fierce. That's the same word. That's the Greek word kalopos that's translated perilous in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Exceeding fierce. This word kalopos describes something that is dangerous, damaging, harmful. In fact, it is so harmful, it is filled with risk. If you get near it, the possibility is that you will be damaged or you will be hurt by it. It is kalopos. It is filled with risk, filled with damage. It is that which is harmful and destructive, exceeding fierce. And this verse says, these two men were so exceeding fierce, kalopos, so that no man might pass by that way. Well, it's talking about the Sea of Galilee. And there was a highway that went all the way around the Sea of Galilee. And if you were in the north of Galilee and you wanted to go down the east side of the Sea of Galilee, you had to take that road. It was an ancient highway. And according to this verse... These two demonized men lived in the cliffs right along that road. And these two men posed such danger. They posed such risk that when people were taking that road to go to the south of the Sea of Galilee, these men would charge out of their tombs, and it presented a real serious risk to the travelers, and therefore travelers stopped going that way. These men represented an impasse, an impasse. And now Paul, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, uses the same word, go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, to tell us at the end of the age, high-risk periods will come filled with damage, filled with hurt, and people will feel they have hit an impasse, an impasse, particularly morally. And in fact, they will feel they have hit such an impasse that the rest of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, perilous times shall come. I'm going to stop and teach on the two words, shall come. It's the Greek word henistomy. From the word hen, which means to be in the middle of something. And the word istomy, which means to stand. When you put these two words together, it describes a time and place when people will feel henistomy, that they are stuck They are encumbered on every side by things that are so distressful, by things that are beyond their imagination, people that have lost their minds. They begin to think crazy. And everywhere they look, they wonder, is this ever going to end? Where can I go? And I won't find this, but they are encumbered by it on every side. And Paul, now writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says, alert, alert, alert. When society comes to that moment, when they are surrounded on every side by a society that has gone veer, Welcome to the end of the age. You have sailed to the last port and it's just about time for the journey to end. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul begins to enumerate 
all the things we're going to see happen at the end of the age. For example, men shall be lovers of their own selves, obsessed with themselves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. I wish I had time to go through all of these, but it's in that book called Last Day's Survival Guide. But then when you get over to verse 13, Paul says, evil men in seducers, there's that word seducing again, those who lead you off track and particularly those who morally cause society to veer shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Wax worse and worse is a Greek word prokopto. It is the very word used in the time of the New Testament to describe something like cancer or gangrene that begins to work its way through a human body. And now Paul says this seduction, this evil, like cancer, will begin to eat through the very fibric fiber of society, deceiving and being deceived, which means those that are doing that leading astray are themselves deceived. They really believe their nonsense because they have allowed their minds to be modified, modified. That is amazing to me. And in fact, when you go to, well, let's just go there. Can we go somewhere else? Let's go to Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul talks about the end of the age. And in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, let's begin in verse 3. Paul says, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, talking about the coming of the Lord, shall not come except there come a falling away first. The word falling away, the Greek word apostasia, it's where we get the word apostasy. But it is the very word used in the Old Testament Septuagint to describe mutiny. And here Paul says there will be a general mutinous attitude against God and against the word of God that is going to develop at the very end of the age. This will come first, and then later on, the man of sin will be revealed. The word revealed, the Greek word apokalupsis. The word apocalypsis describes a curtain being parted, which means the Antichrist may be visible, but we can't see him yet because the curtain has not been parted yet. And the Bible here calls him the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. But if you would jump down to verse 6. And now you know what withholds that he, the Antichrist, the son of perdition, might be revealed in his time. The word hold, withhold, the Greek word kateko, it could be better translated. Now you know what is postponing. Now you know what is restraining. Now you know what is holding him back. But he's going to be revealed in his time. One of these days, the curtain will part. He will step forward. The whole world will see him. It will happen in his time. And then Paul says in verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The word iniquity is a bad translation. It is a Greek word anomia from the word nomos, which is the word law with a privative on the front. It is people that have cast off all restraint. They've said, we're not going to live by the Bible anymore. We're casting off the law of God. It is a lawless people or people who now are standing in defiance of biblical truth. He says the mystery of iniquity or the mystery of lawlessness is already working. Only he who now lets or he who is restraining, he who is holding it back and thereby postponing it will continue to let. He'll continue holding it back. He'll continue restraining it until 
he be taken out of the way. The Greek literally says, removed quickly out of the middle of everything. And then, when this restrainer has been removed, then, the Greek says, precisely then, at that moment, shall that wicked one be revealed. And this is talking really about the rapture of the church. Can you imagine what the world would be like today if there was not a church in the world? Evil is standing in the wings right now. It's waiting. The restraining force is the church. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't think we often do such a good job of restraining, and sometimes it seems like the church can't get its act together, but we are the very presence of God in the church, and the very presence of God in the church, whether we do it well or do it poorly, still it is the presence of God, and it is holding back, it is restraining, it is postponing the manifestation of all of this. But the moment the church is removed quickly from the midst of all, then shall that wicked one be revealed. It's amazing. And if you would jump down to verse 11, where Paul also describes an indication of the end of the age. God will send them strong delusion that they might believe a lie. It's really not that God sends it. He just releases it. If they want the lie, God will let them go for the lie. And here it's called strong delusion. And the word delusion is the same word Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, the word deception. The same word which Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. This word delusion, which particularly describes a moral veering, veering from a well-worn, respectable path to take a new path. So scripture is very clear that deception will run very closely to the coming of the Lord. And if we're living at the end of the age, as it seems we are, then we need to be informed. Now, God is not in the business of scaring people. He's not interested in that. But he is interested in preparing people especially his people. He wants them to be prepared. None of these warnings are given to scare us. Jesus said, beware, watch, learn, listen, hold your head up, throw your shoulders back, hear what I'm about to say. He was trying to jolt his disciples and jolt us to understand what he was saying. And now when you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, go back there again. This know emphatically, categorically, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that when time has sailed to the last port and no more time remains for the journey, you will know it because you will enter a season that is perilous, filled with high risk, and you will feel you've hit an impasse that you cannot get around, and everywhere you look around it, you will feel that you are stuck in the middle of it. You are encumbered on every side. And then again in verse 13, but evil men... And seducers, Paul says, you come closer and closer and closer to the end of the age. Their seduction is going to work like cancer. It's going to work like gangrene, working through the very fiber of society, deceiving and being deceived. Well, how should we respond to that? Paul gives us the answer in verse 14. I love this about God because God never just tells us about problems. He always gives us the solution. And now in verse 14, Paul's, but continue thou in the things thou hast learned 
and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. In other words, just because everybody else has become so open-minded, their brain has fallen out, does not mean you have to lose your mind. Continue thou in the things thou hast learned and hast been assured of. Stick with the truth. Then he says in verse 15, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. The Greek does not say holy verses. The Greek word is holy scriptures. The word scriptures describes every little jot, every little tittle, every little comma, every little paragraph, every little mark in the scriptures. He is elevating the scriptures to tell us every jot, every period, every comma, everything in it is scriptures. It is holy. And he says they are able. The word able to form the Greek word dunitas, fully capable to make you wise. And that word wise is, again, the Greek word sophos, which means if you embrace the scriptures and let them work in you, even though the world around you may seem to have gone crazy, the word of God will make you sharp. It will cause you to think right. You'll be ahead of the rest of the league simply because the word of God is working in you. It will literally make you be a cut above the rest of society. You won't wonder what's right and what's wrong. You'll be able to see it and nail it very fast because there's such a working of the word of God in you. It makes you wise. It makes you sharp unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Then he says this in verse 16. All scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. But notice what he says in verse 16, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. Inspiration of God is the Greek word theopneustos. From the word theos, it's the word God, it's where you get theology, theos, God. The word pneustos it's from the word panu. The word panu was used primarily in three ways. If you're taking notes, please write this down. Number one, the word panu was used to describe God's creative power. This word panu is found in Genesis chapter 1 where it talks about the Spirit of God brooding upon the face of the deep and the Holy Spirit moving. And when the Holy Spirit moved, creative power was released. So first of all, the word panu describes creative power. Secondly, the word panu was used at the time of the New Testament to describe music, music. When a person would hold a flute to his lips and he would breathe into the flute and the breathing of his breath would produce a beautiful, beautiful sound. Number three, the word panu was the very word used to describe a perfume or a fragrance. So if you wanted to go into a shop to buy perfume or a fragrance in the ancient world, you would have said, I want to buy some panu for my house. You brought that perfume or your fragrance into your house, and it changed the aroma in your house. If your house was stinking, you could change the whole smell of your house by bringing a little panu into your house. And now Paul gives us this amazing revelation about the Bible. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, theopneustos. God breathed it. God breathed it. 
Inherent in the Bible is God's creative power. Inherent in the Bible is panu. The sounds of heaven are in the word of God. And if you don't like the music that's going on in your house right now, open the Bible, pull the cap off the top, release the power of the word of God. It will change the music in your home. And if you think your house is stinking right now, dive into the word of God, open the word of God, because the word of God will bring the smells of heaven into your life. Think what a word this is when he's addressing the end time age when people are so confused. People who need creative power to put their lives back together again. People that are experiencing melodrama and such horrible music in their lives, but the word of God can bring a new sound into their lives. There's such a stink in their life, but the word of God can bring fragrance into their life. And then he adds, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and notice this one little word for correction. Everybody say correction. Most of us don't want to be corrected. But the word correction that is used here remarkably describes a person who has been knocked flat in life. But the word correction means to take that person that's been knocked flat and put them back upright on their feet again. Which means if you live in the end of the age and you or your kids or your grandkids or your friends have been devastated and knocked flat, the Bible has the power to put them back on their feet again. It has that power. And then in verse 17... He says that the man of God, the Greek doesn't say that. The Greek says that anybody of God, anybody belonging to God, male, female, doesn't matter who you are, that the person of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. Everybody say thoroughly furnished. Unto all good works. Thoroughly furnished is a Greek word which described a boat that was completely outfitted. There were two kinds of boats. There was the simple boat, which had no gear, had no anchor, no oars, no sail. You couldn't take it very far from the shore, and if you hit rough water, you had to come back. It was not a boat designed for long-distance sailing. It was not a boat that could handle big waves or a storm. But you could take the very same identical model, the very same boat, and thoroughly furnish it. That's the word that is used here. Put an anchor on it. Give it an oar. Give it a sail. Give it all of its equipment. And that same boat that begins just as a simple, simple boat that couldn't go very far and couldn't survive much, once you outfit it with all the rigging and all of the equipment, that same simple boat is now equipped to sail all the way to the other side, to make it through the roughest waves, the worst storm, it has been thoroughly outfitted or thoroughly furnished for long distance sailing through the worst of weather. Now look how genius the Holy Spirit is. This is, I'm going to tell you, friends, there's nothing more wonderful than the Bible. Verse 1 begins by talking about rough water. 
sailing to the last port. Then the whole chapter, it talks about the waves that society is going to face. Now we come to the end of the chapter, and Paul says, if you'll just let the word of God do its work in your life, it doesn't matter how turbulent the waves get. You'll have everything you need to make it through the waves, to make it through the storms, to make it all the way to the other side. The word of God will bring creative power, new sounds, fragrance into your life, put you back on your feet again and equip you for a long distance sailing to the end of the age. Now, I think that's amazing. Is that amazing? I get so excited about the Bible. This is why in every one of my programs, I always end by quoting Ecclesiastes 8, 4, where the word of a king is, there is power. There's power in the word of God. Now, here's what's really pathetic. And I'm not being condemning, I'm just being truthful. People sit in their homes with all kinds of struggles. Their Bible laying right on the table. They've got one on the coffee table. They've got one in the kitchen. They've got one in the bedroom. They might even have one on the backside of the toilet. They might have one in the backseat of the car. Bibles, 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 Bibles. They say, God, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this season of my life. God, I just don't know how. God, would you just please help me? And God's saying, your help is right in front of you. If you'll open it, if you'll dive into it, if you will extract what is in it, it will release creative power. It will release a new sound, new fragrance into your life. It'll put you back on your feet. It will equip you with everything you need to get through whatever you're facing. And how pathetic it is then in the day we're living in, there has really been a departure from the faith. There is very little verse-by-verse verse teaching of the Bible, which is one reason why even Christians are not thinking right in this day. They're not thinking right. You know why? They don't know what the Bible says. The Bible can make you wise. That's what he says. It will make you wise. Young people, growing up in church, trying to determine, well, maybe abortion's okay in some instances. No, it's never all right. They just don't know what the Bible says. Well, you know, you don't want to hurt people's feelings that, you know, some men think that they're women, some women think that they're men, and we just need to be accommodating. We need to love everybody, but it doesn't mean we have to endorse everything. We need to have our heads on straight in a world gone crazy. That doesn't mean you've got to be judgmental. We're not called to be judgmental. And parents, and if this is you, please forgive me. I'm trying to help you. Parents who cave to their kids because their kids are going in a different direction. They raise their kids to believe one thing, but their kids' minds have been modified by their friends, by entertainment, by Hollywood, by the courts, by education. They went to college and they practically lost their kids. Now their kids are embracing things that they never taught their kids to embrace. And parents often, fearful that they will lose their kids, cave. They say, well, we're not going to go to that strong Bible believing church anymore because my kids don't like it. And they follow their kids rather than lead their kids. And here's the problem. When you cave and when you forfeit your position, when your kids really get in trouble and they need to turn to you, you're not going to be there for them. 
And I'm telling you, friends, when kids and grandkids get in serious, serious trouble and they've messed up their minds, now they're modifying their bodies. It's butchery. And they finally look for solutions. If you have caved with them, you cannot help them. You need to be a tower. You need to be a rock for your children. You need to be immovable just like God. He is the God that changes not. And you need to be a person that changes not. And if the rest of the world departs, you stick with the truth. Be there because one day they're going to come back to you. Unless you're not there. I understand that what I'm saying is very difficult. But my friends, we have to do what is right. We're living in the end of the age. And as those who live at this time, we're facing things that no previous generation has faced. And that's another reason why we have to stick with the Bible because it's the Bible that's going to make us wise in these times. It's the word of God that's going to help us think right. In troubled times. So this is what was on my heart tonight. First time I've ever put all this together. How was it? Was it okay? If you attend this church, you're attending a church that teaches the word of God. And if you're attending a church that does not teach the word of God, I highly advise you to start looking for another church. You need to be where the word of God is proclaimed. It is a foundation you can stand on, and people need it in this age. Amen? Amen. Well, I've emptied my heart of what I had, so I want you to put your hand on your heart, and I want to pray for you. Father, we thank you for tonight. Holy Spirit, I've done my best to follow your leading tonight. Holy Spirit, we ask you to make us strong for these times. We know, Jesus, you're coming soon. If we've sailed to the last port, that means it's right in front of us. Help us, Lord, not to lose our bearings between now and then, but to stay on course and let the word of God make us wise. Let it equip us and forgive us for asking for help but not reading our Bibles, not taking it into our hearts. Help us, Lord, to make a decision to make the word of God foremost up front in our lives, the daily fixture that we take in. And we ask that your word would release its creative power, that your word would change the music and the sound in our lives, and that your word would bring the fragrance of heaven into our marriage, into our finances, into our kids, into our grandkids. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. Can I tell one more thing before I give this to you, Pastor? You know, just because you're in the ministry doesn't mean that you read your Bible like you should. You can be in ministry and just traffic in the things of God. It just becomes trafficking in the things of God without it ever really getting into your heart. And years ago, the Lord spoke to me, said several strong things. First of all, he said to me, Rick, if I'm not talking to you, then you don't have the right to say anything to anybody else. That's a pretty strong word. And I made a decision at that time in my life. It's not a Bible law, but it's something that helped me. I did it for me. 
And I made a rule for my life that I live by, and the rule is no Bible, no food. Why would I feed my body but not feed my spirit? If I don't take the Word of God into my heart in the morning, then food does not come into my mouth that day. I have forfeited my right to eat. Now, that's a self-imposed rule. I needed that rule. I needed it for me. I know me. I know what I needed. And I just want to encourage you to think about that. Here people eat and 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 eat, and their spirits are literally malnutritioned because they only eat when they come to church once a week. What if you only ate once a week? You would be a very sick person. And the church is sick. I'm talking about generally speaking. Because it's not taking the word of God into their lives. So I live by this rule. Denise knows. I'm cracking open my Bible. I'm going to read my Bible. If we're in a hurry to get somewhere... <laughs> I'm going to read something in my Bible or I know I'm not going to be able to partake in any physical food that day. And that law has transformed my life. So I'm just leaving that for something for you to think about. Thank you for listening to me tonight.